This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. My name is Tara Carr-Roberts, and my book is called Wild and Distant Seas. Tara Carr-Roberts first read Herman Melville's Moby Dick when it was assigned to her in a graduate class. The brief mention of the innkeeper, Mrs. Hussey, sparked her imagination, and in her debut novel, Wild and Distant Seas, she created a world for Evangeline Hussey and her descendants. Although her novel takes inspiration from Moby Dick, readers need not have read it to understand and appreciate her story. I recently spoke with Tara Carr Roberts about the four generations of women she created and their magical gifts. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Tara Carr Roberts. So could you give our listeners a description of the book? Because the name, Wild and Distant Seas, it comes from another book. Is that right? It does. So uh, it is a reference to Moby Dick. It comes from the line of Moby Dick. And my book is loosely connected to Moby Dick. Uh, What I say is if you've never read it or you didn't like it, that's fine. You can still read my book. It takes a very minor character from early, early, early in Moby Dick, who is um, the woman who speaks most in that whole novel. And she's this very silly comic slapstick character who runs a inn on Nantucket. Um, But in my book, she has a whole other world going on where she has been basically psychically manipulating the people of Nantucket to believe that her husband is not, in fact, dead um, and that he's coming back any day to help her run the inn. Um, And Ishmael from Moby Dick shows up at her inn and kind of sets off a chain of events that ends up affecting her family for several generations, um, taking the story all over the world. And even though there's a lot of Moby Dick characters early, early on in my book, it peels off in its own directions pretty quickly. So I did see in the acknowledgments that you said it was Zach Turpin's Great American Novels class that finally got you to read Moby Dick. Was that your first effort? Yeah, it was. Um, I had been kind of unconsciously avoiding Moby Dick. Uh, I I have an English degree and a master's degree that I finished very slowly over about nine years. And uh, every turn that the opportunity came up to read it, I was like, no, thanks, I'm good. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, uh, Dr. Turpin, who has become a friend of mine, uh, is a great enthusiast of early American literature and was the first book I had to read in the very last class I took for my master's degree. And I started actually what became this novel in that class. So what was it about that story that captured your imagination? I think I had a lot of preconceived notions about what Moby Dick was. Um, Big book, Ahab, White Whale. Uh, And when I started reading it, I, I... was surprised by it. I wouldn't say I love it. I love a lot of it. Uh, A lot of it I'm completely puzzled by, which I think is a pretty common response. Um, I like the weirder parts of it. And that was what really surprised me about Moby Dick was how strange it was. And in some senses, how magical it was. There are strange supernatural events. There are prophets. Um, There's unexpected humor. There's totally off the wall narrative structures. Um, But I was really drawn to this character of this innkeeper of Mrs. Hussey on Nantucket. And I just kind of kept thinking about her as I read the book. And I finally went, you know, I'm really interested in perspective and how different people view the same events. 
And I thought, you know, what if what if Ishmael's telling of her story is all wrong? What if something else is going on? And just kind of ran with it from there. Yeah, I was wondering why you decided to begin with her perspective, especially if she was more of a comical character, because she is absolutely not a comical character in this book. But let's talk about, you know, your book follows four generations from this woman. And, and as you mentioned, she was only briefly mentioned in Moby Dick, and there are only two women who have like speaking roles in Moby Dick. Is that right? Yeah. Let's talk about these women, because it's Evangeline her daughter, Rachel, her daughter, Mara, or Margaret, and her daughter, Annie, or Antonia, they all have special gifts. And I believe you called it, like, quote, unquote, remarkable perception at one point in the book. But they each had a sixth sense of sorts. Can you describe the gift that each woman had? Yeah, so Evangeline uh, has the power to, what I call it, is seeing people's recent memories. She can see the present, kind of, um, in places that she is not. And then she has figured out at some point before the start of the novel that she can very gently nudge and manipulate those memories, although it takes her a great amount of effort to do that. And then her daughter, Rachel, um, can basically do a heightened version of the same thing. Uh, I I see it as a, a mutation. <laughs> I guess those none of them use that word. Um, she can convince people to remember or forget whatever she wants. Um, and then her daughter Mara can see other people's memories as well as remember everything that she's ever done. Um, though it takes her quite a while to understand exactly what she's doing and how it's different from other people. And then Annie uh, can see where anything has been. So it's kind of a different mutation of that sense of memory and sense of place. I found it interesting. I think it was Rachel's, um, you know, her ability to like gaslight people. Um, (laughs) She, it was a gift, but she kept referring to it as a curse. She was able to curse people. Talk to me about the difference there between gift and curse and, and her perception of it. So one of the things that became interesting to me while I was writing this and giving these characters these powers, which initially just started as I liked stories where magic happens and, and I wanted to play with that, um, was the idea that you can perceive something about yourself differently throughout your life. You can perceive something that someone else might consider an incredible gift to be an incredible curse, um, depending on how you use it, how other people respond to it. And so I had a lot of fun with the idea of how each of them both understands and describes their power and how they consider it part of themselves, whether it is something that they're burdened with or something that is a part of them and, and, uh, embodied in them. Well, you mentioned that you like books with magic in them. So do you have any literary influences in like the magical realism realm? Who do you like to read? When I was a little kid, I just adored Madeline Langle, A Wrinkle in Time. That was, you know, probably my favorite book. Um, I loved the idea of, you know, story of very normal person has something incredible happen to them. Uh, And I, I, listing children's books here, Bruce Colville, who wrote a lot of, you know, kid has aliens show up at his house, kid discovers his teacher is an alien, uh, magical thing happens to ordinary person. Um, those books really shaped me as a child, and I kind of grew up into them uh, as an adult. Now I, I love Naomi Novik. She's one of my favorite writers. Um, and sometimes she writes more strict fantasy, uh, but how she plays with the way that very familiar 
emotions and conflicts might exist in a magical world, um, even though I'm writing it in a not necessarily magical world has been a big influence. Um, and Kelly Link as well. I I just love Kelly Link. She has a novel coming out in February. I am super excited <laughs> about it. I was on a library journal panel with her oh, and really? she was so kind and just encouraging. I'm psyched to read her novel. Oh, very cool. So the stories, the stories of these women, while they were, you know, tied together in a way, they also were individual stories of, of strong-willed women trying to chart their own future. So talk to me about the, the craft of writing these separate stories, yet tying them together. I mean, was it, was it difficult to plot? Or did you know the course that each story would take as you were writing it? Did you know it beforehand? Or did you just follow your characters? So I started writing this as a short story. It was just going to be Evangeline's story paralleling these chapters in Moby Dick where she appears. Um, and I have a wonderful friend, a poet, Stacey Bo Miller, who read it and said, you know, this could be a novel, right? And I, I kind of went, yeah, haha, very funny, um, and kept mulling that around. Uh, and when I decided to pursue it as a novel, I went, you know, um, I've been, I, I'm a science writer and I've been a newspaper reporter and I know how to write like a couple thousand words. And I told myself, I can just write a bunch of short stories and stack them on top of each other. That's how I have to think of it as a novel. And that did influence the structure. Um, but also, you know, as I went, I started seeing all the ways I could tie these individual stories together. Um, but I did tend to write each section with, you know, the beginning and where I wanted to end up in mind and the in-between kind of found its own way each time uh, and and sometimes ended up taking me to unexpected places by the end. But I was thinking in terms of how do I make each woman's story cohesive unto itself and then also have enough relevance to the rest of the book to tie it together as a novel. You know, with the exception of Mara and Annie, when we left one story and moved on to the next or, or when a daughter would leave or be removed from their mother, their stories would end. And I found myself, you know, we would move on and I found myself missing them. I found myself missing Evangeline and missing Rachel. Did that happen to you as you wrote? Oh, yeah, I think that's uh, I without giving away too much. I was really interested in at some point making the story fold back on itself. And it, it does. Um, because yeah, I did uh, build a connection with these characters, especially Evangeline, because she was the spark for the novel. Um, Rachel is interesting. She was a character I struggled to write most, even though like the more I've reflected on it, uh, obviously not life-wise, but personality-wise, she's probably the most like me, uh, kind of has my stubborn streak and my tendency to uh, interpret events my way instead of perhaps the way they actually are. Um, and so I did, I did. It was uh, a struggle sometimes to say, you know what, no, this this stays here, this moves on. But also part of why I wanted to write a generational novel is I think it's really interesting to see how stories and connections and the way that we interpret our family changes as you cross generations and as you get farther away from the original story. Did you have a favorite of the storylines? I mean, was one character more near and dear to your heart than the others? Oh, I love them all a little. Uh, <laughs> I loved writing Mara. I loved writing her. I am not entirely sure why, but uh, even she, she is in some ways a very kind of imperious character. And uh, I, I kind of want it to be it, 
not totally clear, but implied that she's actually telling the story from a later point in her life, which is different than the other characters. So that was a fun challenge. Um, but I also just loved Annie. You know, she's who brings the story to Idaho, which is my home. Um, and I had a blast writing about places that were mostly just fascinating and new and curious to me. Um, but I also have lived in Idaho my whole life. And uh, it has shaped my identity in a lot of ways. And I couldn't imagine writing a book that wasn't here. Um, and in earlier versions of it, a uh, character who was not Annie yet um, lived in the town that I grew up in. Uh, but as I edited and shifted timelines, uh, that town didn't actually exist yet. And so I moved it down here to Moscow, where I've lived for the last 20 years. And that was also just, it was a delight to do the research. It was a joy to try to look at this place that I know so well and love so well from a very outside perspective. Um, and I think there's probably some inside jokes in it for the, the folks from my town, <laughs> possibly. Well, I also, I, I loved the character Mrs. Astor. Did you have any inspiration for, for that character? Yeah, so in the section of the novel that I deleted and rewrote, she was the one character who carried over. And some things about her changed, but her kind of what shaped her personality is I have a wonderful friend who is telling me a story about this bearskin coat that's been passed through her family. And her family is a very, very old family in this part of Idaho. And I, I went, you know, I just had this picture in my mind of this eccentric woman in her bearskin coat. Um, but it wasn't just that image. It was the role she plays in that section of the story uh, with where she illustrates an unusual way of determining her own path in a way that inspires Annie, but also challenges Annie's way of thinking about what it means to be independent. So Wild and Distant Seas is your debut novel, but you are an experienced, you know, short story, essay, higher education writer. How is the process of writing this novel different than that of, of writing your shorter pieces? I mean, you mentioned, you know, attacking it as you would like stacking short stories on top of each other, but I, I imagine that had to evolve as you were writing this. Yeah, so the process of revision, I like revising. That's a nice thing about being someone who writes quickly normally. You know, I, I write articles quickly, I edit them quickly, um, is that revision is, is sometimes easier for me than the initial writing. And so I use that to motivate myself a little bit to, listen, just get it out, just get this draft out, and then you can revise it and won't that feel good. <laughs> um, but the process of revising a novel was way bigger than I had really imagined. Um, but one thing that having been a journalist and having been a communications writer kind of trained me is to not be super precious about my work, I guess. Um, even though it was, you know, I had a few days of like grief when I, I deleted 30,000 words out of this manuscript at one point wow. um, when I thought it had been done. Um, but also, you know, I had the, the perspective to be able to say, like, I know that that good editing can change a story in a good direction and have that faith to be like, yeah, I can, I can keep working on this and making it better. Um, and I did give myself deadlines because I also knew that where I'm used to having some confines on my work that just saying like, oh, I could write this novel forever was entirely possible <laughs> if I didn't say, you know, at some point it, it needs to be done. <laughs> and now it's really done. It's on my shelf back there. <laughs> there you go. So is it just me or does it seem like Moby Dick and other classics are, are really having a moment? I mean, I, I, I just read Day's Work um, by Batchelder and Havel. And, you know, there are other retellings of Greek mythology and Jane Austen. Do you think why do you think we keep returning to these classic 
works? I think that, yeah, it's definitely having a moment. I think <laughs> that it's it's been a long moment, though. Like, I think of a book like The Red Tent, which is 30, 30 years old or more now, which is a retelling of a biblical narrative, where it is always fun to go back from where we are and who we are in time and revisit these stories and say, you know, what's what's missing? What's untold? What is a new way to play with this and look at it? Um, one of my absolute favorite books is Madeline Miller's uh, Circe or, or Kierke. Uh, and I love how she approaches that idea of, you know, here's a character you thought you knew, you don't know her. Here is a, a book you thought you knew, you don't know it. And I think it was not necessarily what I expected to do as a writer, but ended up being just a blast to do, especially with something like Moby Dick, where people don't associate it with women at all. And they're really not super there. There are a handful of named ones, but I, I had a revelation at one point was like, there are more ships with names than women with names in Moby Dick. And so what can I pull out of that? What could I play with? Um, was super fun. You know, after I read Day's work, some friends and I just uh, we decided that this is the time where we are going to read Moby Dick. And I actually tried to read it before I read yours because I thought I needed to. And then I realized I would not have enough time and I just stopped, although I was enjoying reading it at the time. But would you rather who would you rather read this book, those who have read Moby Dick or those who are coming to the story blind? I think either. I think people who have read Moby Dick. Uh, will find things in this book that that someone who hasn't might not like they're almost every character in the first section is someone who is mentioned usually just in passing in Moby Dick but I also I've heard from so many readers who have never read Moby Dick who read this and loved it and felt confident to read Moby Dick uh, which was a cool and unexpected sort of uh side thing. Not, not that my book is anything like Nimobi Dick narratively <laughs> or philosophically or anything. Um, but yeah, I guess as someone who's never read Moby Dick reads this and says like, yeah, I'll, I'll tackle this big weird novel now. That would be pretty cool. Um, even if they don't end up liking or finishing Moby Dick afterward. <laughs> it's, it is a, it's a journey. I'll call it that. The book is Wild and Distant Seas. Tara Carr Roberts, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Beth. This was really fun. That was Tara Carr Roberts, author of the book Wild and Distant Seas, which was published by Norton. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.